Hey everyone, welcome into another edition of the Woj Pod. Here with the great Zach Lowe, who had a very productive week at ESPN. <laughs> They're all productive. Zach, great Brandon Ingram profile. Your 10 things I think I like today. And Mike Schmitz on the on the low post talking NBA rookies this week. How are you, Zach? I'm good. I'm good. The sun is out. I feel I feel a little better about life, and uh, I'm doing I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Ready for the weekend. I feel a little better about life too this week, but we'll we'll move on from that. Let me ask you this, Zach. In a normal season, you know, 15, 16 games in, depending on which team you are in the league right now, uh, some are um, much fewer than that. How many games would you have been to already between living in the New York metropolitan area, between the Knicks, the Nets, maybe a road trip somewhere early on? That Brandon Ingram piece you did, you might have flown in and done that. Yeah. Have you been to any games? I haven't been to one, um, partly because I don't see the utility uh, and partly because I it requires – now advanced notice and levels of organization that I don't always have going on in my life. I would like to go, frankly, just to get out of the house and see basketball in person, but I, I haven't yet. In a normal year, probably by now, I would have gone to L.A. at least once, and I would have gone there during a Lakers-Clippers home-heavy part of the schedule, so I would go and knock out three or four games, seen a couple of games here already. I'd probably be up to six or seven by now, and of course, I, I have not been to a game since March of 2020 in Boston, when probably none of us should have been going to games, but say mm-hmm. lovey. Yeah, yeah. Outside the bubble, obviously, we went to a lot of games in the bubble um, every day. But pre-shutdown, there was a game in LA. I think about it a lot. Should have been at it. It was the Laker Clipper game on Sunday. We did NBA countdown courtside, and you knew you weren't supposed to be shaking hands. I don't think I was shaking hands. Uh, I remember it was the first time somebody gave me one of those elbow bumps and yeah that was the last time in staples center you're right and like this time of year any time of year you go to la like you said if the clippers and lakers are both home and you have visiting teams coming in and then the teams if they have a break a day or two in their schedule they stay an extra day or two in la so you can get with guys there Uh, a lot you know we stayed out at the la live area some of the teams you know they might stay up on beverly hills but some would stay downtown based on their schedule and god and, bless the teams that stay downtown oh. Te- teams and anonymous downtown teams i love you keep staying downtown <laughs> don't don't flee to the beach because it takes forever to get there well even worse is the ones who you know the beverly hills when you got to go out to beverly hills oh. um to to chase down at the montage right teams like to say at the montage lovely hotel um but a hike from a hike from downtown but yeah i miss it i miss you know, even if you go to a Nets game here or you go to a Knicks game, you can't go down on the court and talk with assistants before the game, see the GMs, grab the coach, grab, you know, see players. You can't do any of it. And so you're right. The value is, for us, uh, not great. And and I don't know if that's going to change. I'm not sure that's going to change at all this year. Even if we have well, fans in the building, I don't think – We'll get physically close to anybody, and um, never mind trying to do a podcast with somebody at their hotel. I miss that. I miss going. Hey, 
teams coming into the city. They land at five. He'll be ready to do the podcast with you at six thirty. Which, by the way, it's never going to be six thirty. Whatever they say, it's never. It's never going to be. There's going to be traffic <laughs> from the airport. They're going to get dinner for. It's going to be two hours after that. But yes, the, that that rat race is enjoyable <laughs> in some in some perverse way. Well, I miss sitting there and waiting. I miss sitting there and waiting. Yeah, but yeah, that uh, it's different. And you know, our listen, our audience suffers for it. I think everybody suffers for it. Um, but it's the reality of. You know, grinding through this season, we'll see. Again, I, I don't know that it'll be any different this year. We've got to get through this season. And uh, one thing I wanted to bring up, Zach, to start off with was, you know, we've got we've had 20 postponements of games this season. Memphis has had four straight now. Washington will be coming back here soon after being out for – they haven't played since last Monday, so almost a, over a week and a half. Um Almost two or Friday, almost two weeks, and some, some, a shift in the league. How the league is handling this, and you're, you saw it in the Memphis. They had, let's say, they postponed two games against the Blazers, two games against the Kings. They were going to be in Portland for two games, and then and then down to Sac. And essentially, the, what the league was doing was, yeah, if a player tested positive or they thought a player had been exposed, the contact tracing was. And I'll give you an example and I won't say which team, there was a player got put into contact tracing because one of his teammates who tested positive, they drove into the game together, picked them up, they lived near each other, drove in. So the other player had to go in contact tracing. And there's actually a formula the league has. I think it's 15 minutes, I think anything over 15 minutes with somebody or around somebody, they look at tape to see on the court, on the bench to try to, measure out the time they'll do that and then off the court obviously you're at the you know you've got to report that in and and typically they're going to try to err on the side of caution but essentially what the league is saying we're not going to we're not going to sift through this memphis roster see if we have eight players based on contact tracing we're shutting them down park the word i heard was we're going to park them and we're not going they, they are worried about player to player contact on the floor player-to-player transmission, and I have to believe that's going to lead to more postponed games because that's the minimum bar for, I mean, you're going to have guys continue to test positive, and so it's hard to believe there's going to be, that every team's going to get to 72 games, Zach, and by the time we get to the playoffs, it may look like we're going to do it by winning percentage, or uh, I, I don't know there's any other way to do it. They have a window to make up games. Um, and wait till that happens, Zach. We get into that two-week break the players are supposed to have, and they say yeah, it's not going to be a break for a lot we, of players. What did we call it in school? It was like your snow days. We got to make up your snow days on February. Yeah, vacation. you got to make it. That's why the two-hour delay was always better than a snow day. Just let me sleep in and count the day, bank the day. I don't have to make it up uh, later in the year. Yeah, the two-hour delay was. Um, yeah, that's. I hadn't thought about that in a while. But yeah, and listen, this is a league now that is. They put in more stricter guidelines over the last couple of weeks. They want to see if the numbers go down. The numbers went from 16 positives to 11 positives this week. They hope it'll go down again next week. And essentially you have players who aren't players and staff, not allowed to leave their hotels, not allowed to have guests in rooms. And at home, it's pretty strict. It's pretty strict for teams in their home markets too. 
We'll see how sustainable that is. I don't think it's going to be the rest of the season like yeah, that. There, there was a two. That was a, initially a two-week like temporary measure. Yes. Are we at two weeks yet? I two, just lost track. Uh, mid, we're we're got to be close. So right? ge- I think January twelfth today is what the twenty-second. So ten days in, eleven days in. So and, they've and, already got to be talking about then. Do we extend these? Do we renew? I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and so they were going to re- revisit it at two. I, I do think it'll go a little longer than two. I don't think it'll end it two. But I don't know that it can go much, much longer than that. What, what's your sense, Zach, of the level of, of, of patience and buy-in there still is around the league to grind through this? Because it all, like his teams have said from the beginning, we're only as strong as our weakest link in teams. And again, it just takes it's literally takes one player or one staff member to shut down a team now for a period of time. Well, and that's that's you know you've seen the frustration from the Sixers um, and from Brad Beal this week about you know I don't uh, teams saying it's it's not fair for uh, why are why are we being forced to play with eight guys whereas some teams are 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 being are able to have their games postponed and and in Brad's case it was I, I don't think we're ready to ramp back up I don't think we have enough guys really ready to ramp back up like that and and that kind of frustration is just going to be is going to be part of the season and now. The league appears to be, according to your reporting in the Memphis story, taking a sort of opposite tact of rather than have these skeleton crews out, we're just going to park a team on the sidelines. And look, you mentioned the league being worried. I think you said the league is, is worried about player to player transmission on the floor. And, you know, in their health protocols, they have this this definition again, 15 cumulative minutes within close range over 24 hours. And they went out of their way to say, well, we look at the second spectrum data, the tracking data, it shows that's actually quite unusual for two players to be within, within whatever distance of each other for 15 minutes a game. And they have this testing regimen, right? Two tests a day. Now it's going to be three in a lot of cases. Uh, they're put, they're pushing back start times of games now furiously to try and get a PCR test done pregame. And the whole point of that is um, if someone's positive on game day, we're going to catch it. Or if they test neg- they're, they're going to test negative. And the reason they're going to test negative, even if they end up having had the virus, is because the load of the virus is so low that they're essentially 0% chance they're going to be contagious. So they have all of these built-in mechanisms to prevent or uh, limit player-to-player transmission. If those mechanisms turn out to be not enough, or if, if player, let, let, let me put it like this, if player transmission turns out to be more of a reality and more of a concern than they had initially conceived of it, despite all the measures, and you can't test players eight times a day, they're doing about the best they can, then then the NBA is, is going to be facing a, a larger problem. But I do think one of the things you mentioned before, all these teams, these postponements, the teams parked, the skeleton crew teams, it, it gives off the impression of... Uh, an outbreak, and in one case, the Wizards. They, I think that I don't know what qualifies as an outbreak. I, I think outbreak. that qualifies as an outbreak. But yeah. but eleven positives this week, sixteen last week. Let's if it drops again, knock on wood, it's not an avalanche of positive cases. I think that is important to remember. It's not. That's not why this is happening. It's the contact tracing. Yeah, I love. I love every time you report one of these games is postponed, and you just get all the comments on Twitter. Shut it down. Cancel the season. It's funny. They didn't do that so much in football. I never heard that in football. And think of the weeks in the NFL where Denver played without a quarterback one week. I think somebody played without really any wide receivers that went through the quarterback room or the wide receiver room. 
here's the thing, Zach. Getting through this regular season is one thing. It is hard to imagine that this could be sustainable in the playoffs. And it's funny, going into the bubble, we talked a lot about what happens when a player tests positive and or somebody goes in contact tracing in the middle of a series and it throws the series. And we got into the bubble and realized, well, that's probably not going to happen, that this thing really is self-contained. And it was certainly, it, it saved the season. It is hard to imagine, Zach, and, and, I, and I keep getting this back from people, that without, a, without vaccinated players or without a bubble, how do you have the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, you can have them. It's more of a, how do we have a representative playoffs? How do we get through it without, you know, one of the three or four best teams essentially having to go forward with a 25% version of itself. You know, if their best player gets it, gets the virus, that's it, it's over. Um, and so then everyone will scream asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. And I've said all along, and you have too, I, I don't think, no one has ever wiped the playoff bubble or last two rounds bubble or some sort of late season bubble off the whiteboard. I mean, that's mm-hmm. never been totally dismissed. It's not something anybody wants to do. There are tons of wild cards between now and then the most important of which, as you mentioned, is the speed of vaccination, both for the player community and just the general populace. Um, we don't really know how that's going to unfold. Adam Silver floated this week at a conference, like maybe maybe players can serve as sort of a public service announcement. Maybe that will allow us to, quote unquote, I mean, he didn't say it, but skip the line uh, yeah. and get vaccinated early. So we don't know how any of these things are going to unfold. But yeah, I mean, I don't think I don't think anybody wants a, a super compromised postseason and, and a champion where people look at it and say, well, was that really the, the champion? Um, you know, and, and again, all of these things, it's important to remember, I keep saying this, all these things are collectively bargained. And the players, you know, the players are not just passive recipients of these policies from on high. Now, some of these things like these two week rule changes, they are done really, really fast. And I don't think every player has a chance to really contemplate them or make their voices known because there's 450 players and these changes are being made on the fly. And so it does, in those cases, it's, if you're just a random player, it does probably feel like it's coming at you. But the general big, should we have the season? How should we have a playoff bubble eventually? All of those things, the players are participating in. And, you know, at the root of this, a lot of it is, if you shut down the league, everybody loses their money. And that's mm-hmm. that's why all of this stuff is collectively bargained. It's There's no great solution to any of this. But I do think it's important to remember that the players are active participants. Ask Chris Paul how much time he's put in and Andre Guadalla how much time he's put in. Michelle Roberts on and on to, to try to make this happen. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes, catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, Grand Slams, Web Gems, with nothing on your roof. So whoever's up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, you name it, they won't find a satellite dish. But you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Let's move back to the court. Let's start with Brooklyn. 
Zach, because that's it feels like every conversation in the league starts with them right now. To you, what what's the bigger issue? Feels like a first take question. But what's the bigger issue for the Nets? Is it how the big three plays together offensively, how they coexist? Can they make that work? Or is it whether this team is going to have enough size, enough of a bench that it believes in, enough of a defensive – can they be just good enough – can they become just good enough defensively to be able to win the championship or get to the finals? As you know, you've got to be able to – they're going to have to be much more proficient on that end of the floor. Which, which to you is a bigger concern for this team? It's not even close to me, and it's defense. At offense, those three will figure it out. Will it always be super elegant? I think it actually might almost always be super elegant. <laughs> but uh, will, will, will one guy every night feel maybe somewhat unhappy? I don't know. I think the offense will take care of itself. This has a chance to be one of the greatest offensive teams of all time. The defense and the size, and look, they'll get on the buyout market. They'll get another center. They'll get another guy just to round out the rotation and bring some size. But like you said, I mean, you can't win the championship. I mean, maybe these guys will prove the exception. But if you're just awful on defense, you're going to run into a series where you've got to guard a little bit and get rebounds. And they're not a good rebounding team. They weren't a good rebounding team when they were bigger than they are now when they had Jared Allen. And that's going to be a little bit of a struggle. To me, their model is, you know, everyone wants, whenever you see this conglomeration of stars, right, the comparison is always, well, look at the Warriors. The Warriors had an amazing offense, but they were also a top three defense every year. You have to be a top three defense to win the championship. I don't think you actually, it certainly helps. But to me, their model is more the 2016 and 2017 Cavaliers, the team that won the championship and the following year, which was an even, even better team that ended up losing to the to iteration one of the Durant Warriors um, in the finals. That was clearly a championship caliber team in Cleveland. And it was super, super, super elite offense and good to okay defense, like 12th best. When you turn it on in the playoffs, you're suddenly equivalent to like the 10th best defense. You can win that way. And to me, that's their model um, more than more than those Warriors models. But yeah, I mean, you've got to, that means you have to guard at a decent level. And to me, that's by far the bigger challenge. The offense is going to be fine unless the ego clashing, which we don't even know if, if it doesn't appear to everyone, appears fine. Unless that becomes such a big problem, I think the offense will take care of itself. Yeah, I, I want to see what the leadership looks like, not just among the big three, but among the rest of the group. Who's going to elevate the rest of that group? Um. I think that's important for that team. And I think among – the Nets have three roster spots open now. And I do think they want to bring in some more veteran – not just size, but but some veterans, some good locker room guys there. And, and then Steve Nash's learning curve. Uh, it is – it's one thing to be a first-time head coach. It's another thing to be a first-year head coach when you're going to be in the playoffs and you're going to be in – you know, drag out seven game series against a Mike Budenholzer, against a Doc Rivers, against a Brad Stevens, against an Eric Spolstra. And I think for Steve Nash, you know, that's the other, um, that takes time and that takes a lot of trial and error as a head coach. And, and no matter how great of a staff you have around you, it's still the head coach in that moment of truth that's got to be ready to, to make the adjustments, all the things you've got to do in a postseason. And I think that's the 
That's the race. They knew that when they hired Steve. I mean, they knew that. But it's going to be a big part of this. Just think of how fast life happens in the NBA. In the scheme of the world, like yesterday, the Nets were a frisky young culture team. Oh, look at our culture. We play hard. We build from the ground up. We dug out of this hole with a young grinding coach in Kenny Atkinson. That was like 72 hours ago in like the grand scheme of things. And now Steve Nash is their head coach. Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, and James Harden are all on the team. Almost nobody is left from that, you know, D'Angelo Russell, look at us. We're, we're a 40-whatever win team. We're grinding. We're rah, rah, rah. It's, it's, like, it's like Joe Harris and Jacques Vaughn and like a couple assistants that are somewhere floating around. That's it. I remember standing with uh, Rich Kleiman, who is Kevin Durant's uh, business partner, and it was the Warriors were in Brooklyn in KD's last season. It was early in the season. And uh, Golden State came in, the Nets beat them. And I remember standing out in the hallway and, you know, you were thinking about free agency. Uh, Brooklyn was, you knew that Brooklyn was at that point was going to try to be very aggressive to, to go after these guys. But there wasn't a sense yet that they were anything near a front runner. And I, I remember Rich saying, we were just talking about the Nets and they had beaten the Warriors. It was, it was a really good win for them. And he said, you know, they're kind of like, I remember saying something like they're, they're like the mid-major college team that's breaking through, you know, like just how you said that spunky. And that's what they felt like. They had like a lot of overachieving guys. Joe Her- Joe Harris was emerging then. Spencer Dinwiddie was emerging. D'Angelo Russell had come from the Lakers and, and was, you know, really starting to get his footing as, as a very good player in the league. And, and I even think of that conversation with Rich, and that was only, you know, seven months, six months before they, you know, they decided – to sign with Brooklyn. It is an incredible transformation. I, I, it is Brooklyn's the one place I really wish, listen, I wish there were fans everywhere, but the Nets have always been that just the other team, just like the Clippers have been in LA with the Lakers, but, but, and, and as great as the Knicks have been, and that's another, I mean, what Tom Thibodeau has done and, and what they've done with the Knicks and how competitive they are is another thing. And it's, and it's always going to be, it just, it's still always going to be a Knicks town, even with, these three guys here. Although I would like to see what, just what it would be like in that arena, what the fan base would be like. Would it be, I mean, so many times you'd go to Nets games and they were still there to see, you know, Kobe was coming in, there was the Lakers and that was true in a lot of cities, but I really want to see, is there this big Nets base that was going to be not just people wandering over there curious or getting tickets or, Hey, I can, I want to go see what it looks like. But like we're next, or, it's, or it's, liter- it's it's literally like on my walk home from the subway. Like I mean, it, you know, Barclay Center is right there. I have friends that live. Like you can get off the subway. Hey, you know what? Who's in town tonight? Let me go see a game. I don't know what you know a carry is. I don't know what a double dribble is. But I'm gonna go see. Let me go see a game. I mean, I think there was some of that too. Yeah. No. It's um. Yeah. They're gonna be. We're gonna be talking about them. Can I give the Knicks some love, by the way, because you just mentioned yes. them? Yes. No. Yes. yes. So when they, in the first week of the season, my first 10 things, I wrote about Julius Randle and the Knicks. I love Julius Randle. And I wrote something like, maybe the results aren't going to be all that much different, but it's a you know it when you see it thing. And you watch them play even in the first week of the season, and they were coherent. They had an identity. They played hard. They were organized. And yeah, the talent was the talent, and it was probably not going to be a great season, but you knew it when you saw it. Something's a little bit different here. And then they went they they went from 
five and three to five and eight. They lost five in a row. And their offense was awful. 89 points, 89 points. I'm looking at it now. It's just awful offense. And you had a sense of, okay, this is the real Knicks. Reality has set in. Then they win three straight over Boston. Yeah, no Tatum, but Kemba played. They beat him by 30. Over Orlando. Okay, Orlando's got a million injuries. Still beat him. And then last night in Golden State, Draymond gets ejected. But they were ahead when Draymond got ejected. Yeah. And they end up winning by 15. Great moments by Quickly and Toppin late in the game. Another very nice R.J. Barrett game. Now, again, it's early still. But for them to right the ship and win three straight games pretty emphatically, I th- when previous Knicks teams we've seen, not only would it have gone down the drain, they would have had an emergency press conference with morose <laughs> executives. They would have fired the coach. All the back pages would have been laughing at them. They just calmly went out and won three straight games. I have to, it, it's a little thing. I, I just... I'm just saying, let's take note of it. The Knicks, the Knicks righted the ship and are now 500, and we're 16 games into a 72 games max season. Like it's a significant portion. They're going, they look like they're going to be in the playing race all year. Oh, ab- absolutely. And I, I mean, like Tom Thibodeau was the perfect coach for Mitchell Robinson. Perfect coach to come in. Um, you know, for the entire group, he's just brought structure, organization a way of playing like there's a way of playing that here's what we need to do to be successful and you've seen them buy into uh the blueprint Ian O'Connor said late last night on Twitter he said you think back to the 90s when you could stay up late and it was to stay up late and watch a Knicks road trip out west and if you're a Knicks fan when's the last time you might give the Knicks a shot at 7 30 at night when they're playing and then and then by 10 of 8 you're you're off to something else but you're going to stay up late and watch them play in Golden State and watch them play Portland and watch them play the L.A. teams. If you're a Knicks fan, you can do that again. Yeah. Usually that's where you'd go to lose 6-7. That's where your season would go to die, right? Yeah. yeah the, the West Coast game is a big commitment for a fan. You know, you're going to be up till 1230, 1 in the morning. Um, I do think it's fitting that we started this segment talking about the Nets and we finished it talking about the Knicks. It's, that's, I think that's, we should just let that be. Speaking of games last night, Utah, New Orleans, and, and Utah's playing great. I mean, seven in a row for them. They're, Mike Conley is – this is the Mike Conley that Justin Zanuck and Dennis Lindsay traded for. You see him, his role, their bench. You wrote about it in your 10 things today, just how good that second unit has been. But on the other side of it, let's, I'm going to start there. New Orleans, you wrote a great pre- piece on Brandon Ingram this week. And that's been the team I thought that Stan Van Gundy would have initially. The impact that Tibbs is having in in New York, I thought Stan was going to have that initially in New Orleans. Now, they've been on a long road trip. They've been away for 12, I think they've been on the road 12, 13 days. Um, But but let's start with Brandon Ingram. Um, First of all, what what pulled you toward that piece with him? Because he's not... He's such a quiet. He is. He's a marvelous guy, um, but quiet. You did a piece talking to a lot of guys who coached him: Joe Boylan, uh, Brian Keith, former assistants, uh, some current guys, and and sort of shaped it as an important player for this era for a couple of reasons. Well, that's why I, initially that piece was going to be much different. You know, before the bubble, I did a podcast series where I caught up. Let, let's catch up with every one of the teams that's coming back to the bubble because it had been four months. 
And for the Pelicans one, I really dove in and watched a lot of film because I was fascinated with the Pelicans. And it's ironically, Stan was my guest for that episode. And th- four months later, he he was the coach. Um, and I just became really interested in Ingram. And I was interested in him also in the most improved awards race, thinking about whether he should win it or not. Because there was no denying his numbers. I mean, for the shooting leap he made last year and the scoring leap he made from 18 to 25, shooting 39% from three, 80-something at the line. That's huge. You don't see a lot of guys make that, particularly when their responsibility on offense increases and they have to take more shots. And the more I watched him, the more I thought, really great that he made this leap. I don't think his impact on winning games matches his numbers. I think he's a he's a good playmaker who could be a really good one. And I thought his defense really slipped last year, and he he's admitted it. And I said on, on my pod, I said, I'm almost more interested in the Brandon Ingram that averages 22, 8, and 8 and plays really good defense than I am in the guy that averages 26, 5, and 5 and plays bad defense. And going from player A to player B, I just became fascinated with that process. Like, how do you, how, because defense and playmaking, particularly defense, are, are two things when people watch the game, it's, it's harder to see. How have you gotten better? What have you? What passes are you making that you weren't making before? What What's the timing on those passes? How has that changed? I thought that process was really fascinating. So the piece initially was just going to be, this guy is the most important player in the NBA, just in terms of if he hits and Zion hits, they've really got something there. And if they plateau, they have something, but it's not something. And then I interviewed him for like an hour on Zoom. And I wanted to do it face-to-face. I wanted to see him. I wanted to have a real conversation because I wanted to show him clips of plays. And I was just blown away by how funny he was, by how self-effacing he was, by how willing he was to get into the weeds of his game, his good points, his flaws, to tell stories about Magic Johnson, about Stan, about his past. And I had heard great intel on Brandon. I had heard, I mean, I never had really interviewed him at length. But I had heard people say, you're going to like him. He's a hard worker. He just cares about basketball. Um, and he was just an open book. He was willing to discuss things that were not just going to pump him up. And and mm-hmm. I just became blown away by him. And I just thought, well, let me just turn this into a Brandon Ingram thing. Let me just go to town and start interviewing coaches and his family and former teammates. And it sort of just went from there. I tried to keep the, pe- the peg of the, the spine of this guy can swing the NBA balance of power if he develops in ways X, Y, and Z. But I, I blew it up into something broader that hurt my brain for a couple of weeks trying to craft it. But I, I came away, you know, there are just certain guys that you that you that you click with and that you can talk ball with, and and they have fun personalities. And I, I just really enjoyed getting to know him. I love the passage in there about after signing his max deal, reaching out to Brian Keefe, who had been an assistant with his with the Lakers. And put a lot of time in uh, with him in the gym, and uh, said, "Hey, thanks, thanks for your role in that." And that, like, you know, that's like the, you know, the student that goes back to the teacher years later, and you know, makes it feel like, "Hey, that's, hey, thanks for helping me become this or achieve that." And there's a lot of those guys in the league who put in a lot of hours with players, and ultimately, the player gets the credit. I mean, it's it's the player who deserves the credit, but it's I thought that was pretty neat to see him go back to Brian and you know, kind of circle back with him and, and, and some others. Uh, the jazz Zach, I mean, mentioned them at the start of this and Donovan Mitchell was, has been 
fantastic. <laughs> a weird moment with Shaq. That was last really. Night. I didn't see that because uh, I was watching Knicks Warriors and then I went to bed. I didn't see that, and I woke up this morning. I was like, I I don't. Is Shaq trying to? Is Shaq trying to inject himself into Donovan Mitchell's career arc? Like, does he want to say like I've motivated him to take the next step by by being so direct? I didn't understand what was happening. I looking back, it certainly it was very uncomfortable. I love the way it's, Donovan handled it. I just, he, did, he did. He handled it beautifully. Um, I think I think what Shaq's trying to do is I'm gonna I'm gonna motivate him. I'm gonna be the I'm going to be a motivational tool for him in that moment. Is that how we would do it? Probably not. I don't know if Donovan knew what to make of it, but he handled it uh, well. I, I don't. I don't think Shaq was trying to insult them. No, I don't either. I think he. Was I, 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 yeah, yeah. But it was but, still. But Donovan, awkward. Donovan, Donovan doesn't need outside motivation. No. That dude. That dude is rock solid. You know he. Mm -hmm. I went to a charity event he did in Connecticut a couple of months ago, and I talked to him a little bit afterwards, and we talked about the playoff series and Mike Conley's shot, and yeah. he, his face, his he like leaned he like hunched over when you could tell he was still recovering from the blow of losing that series, and he didn't. I mean, he's proud of how he played in that series the duel with Jamal Murray and all that. But you could tell two X months later, he was still aching, you know, to get out of the, to get further in the playoffs than they have. Yeah. They're going to be, um, you know, they've, and you wrote about it too, Jordan Clarkson's impact on that team, that trade from Cleveland early last season, a couple second round picks, as I recall, Exum. Dante, Dante Exum, who, Unfortunately, has just never. He's he was a throw-in ultimately in the uh, to the Rockets in the Harden the bigger Harden deal this year and got injured again. Uh, but yeah, Clarkson has been an immense player. Then they re-signed him this summer, and um, that's a yeah, that's a team in Utah that is. You know, they always talk about like, can we put a sustainable team together? That's a team now locked in under contract, and and a coach, you know, Quinn Snyder who. If you did a draft of NBA, if you made all 30 NBA, if you opened up all 30 jobs and you had a draft of coaches, he goes what in your top five? Yeah, he's top five for sure. Top, top um, five for sure. Well, you know, you start. Yeah, I think you would go top five. I voted him coach. I voted him coach of the year once, I think three seasons ago or two seasons ago. He's a great coach. Yeah, they're playing. They're playing well. I mean, I still think they're below the Lakers and the Clippers in, yeah. in championship equity, but they are proving they've separated themselves from everyone else in the West early. And at the very least, like it's not going to be any fun to play them when they're, when they're clicking in the playoffs. One last thing. And speaking of coaching, Zach, this is a time of the year where you see it in the NFL and the coaching carousel in the NFL is different than the NBA. I think part of it is now well, I think there's probably more focus on the coach in the NFL. Um, there might be than the NBA in some cases, but, the hires all happen. The firings all happen in the first day or two. They have such they call what they call Black Monday, and a bunch of guys are fired. And then the interview, like because they're competing, I think for staff, they're competing for coordinators and who's going to hire who. You see these these hires move quicker, 
And I think sometimes it creates more focus on who all the candidates are. And you see it in the NFL with with black coaches and, you know, Eric Bieniemy. I think there's one job open left. I think Houston. And is he going to get one of these jobs? He's been the premier coordinator on the premier team in the league in Kansas City. And rightfully so. It's a significant story. And, you know, the NBA generally has been has had a better hiring record than the NFL has. But we don't I don't think we take time. We don't talk as much about the assistants in the NFL, in the NBA as we do in the NFL. And I think there's a group of of, of young, young and you know not so young uh, <laughs> black assistants uh, who, who are going to be head coaches. And I thought last year's interview process, guys didn't get jobs. But I, but I think, Zach, there are a few guys on the cusp. And, and I would tell you, Darvin Ham in Milwaukee who made an incredible impression with the Clippers, with Indiana. Jamal Mosley in Dallas made a great impression. Again, with in L.A., they interviewed a bunch of guys, interviewed in other places. Wes Unsell Jr. with the Nuggets, who Mike Malone, to his credit, Mike gave, I think, Wes a lot of, a lot of praise for that Nuggets defense in the bubble and, and, and the role he played. And there are others, and I know there's – but I, but I think – we are going to see in the NBA, you're going to see some of these candidates start to break through and get jobs. And we, we never talk. We just don't talk about it the way we do the NFL. But I, I think there's just and there's others. I'm not I don't want to do just a list here. But certainly I think those guys are among the, mo- the most prominent right now who who, who are, I think, really close. Yeah, and Jaron Collins' name has come up before. Yep. Charles Lee's another Milwaukee assistant. David Vanderpool, um, you know, uh, and Jordy Fernandez with with the Nuggets. Uh, and I think you know Chauncey's a rookie coach. Oh yeah, yeah. In, in the Clippers, but I know Chauncey, and um, Chauncey's going to do big, big things in the NBA if he sticks it out. So there, there are, and again, I don't want to make it a list because then it's about who you left off. So those are just names that are off the top of my head. Melvin Hunt's another one. Yeah. Um, but there, there are certainly, you know, um, there are a lot of great candidates. And, and yeah, I haven't really followed the B enemy story in the NFL. I don't really know what's going on. I saw that it, it became a thing. Um, but, you know, certainly there's, there's just a ton of guys. And I do think it's important to keep beating the drum on that because the coaching and executive ranks are not representative of what the game looks like. No, it's it's not. And and you mentioned Chauncey, and you're right. Like he's come, you know, he kind of came close on the front office side of it. He did interview in Indiana for coaching. But I think the feeling had always been if Chauncey just takes an assistant job for a year or two, it will not be long before he just needed to be on the bench and be around it. And being and that's a great staff in LA. Uh, Ty Lu, who's outstanding, and having Kenny Atkinson on that staff. Roy Rogers, who's a very good NBA. Uh, another, I think. Uh, Dan Craig is there too from Miami. Yeah, like, yeah. They're, they're, that staff is loaded. Yeah, yeah. They spent money for that staff and they went out and got um, top guys. So I think that's going to be, a, I think, for Chauncey, um, you know, that will be impactful for him. But I wanted to hit on that. We never, we don't talk about it enough. Um, and it's, it's important in this league. And I think, um, you know, I think for the NBA, and I think, listen, you look at the job too, JB Bickerstaff has done in Cleveland. I think, with this group, even back to when he took over for John Beeline, I, I want to say they're playing around 500 basketball. Um, from then, it was it was a short window from there to the end of the season, and then 
you know, a great win over the Nets the other night. But they've been, you know, without Kevin Love really at all this season, you know, they've been more than competitive. But uh, Zach, good catching up as always. Maybe there's a Woj low in our future somewhere. Maybe. It's been on TV. Have yeah, you heard about fun. that? I haven't heard about it. But no, it'd be fun. It would be fun. Um, have a great weekend. We will we will talk soon, Zach. My pleasure. Good to see you and stay safe out there. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woj Pod. A big thank you to our guest today, ESPN Zach Lowe. Be sure to listen to new and archived episodes of the Woj Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, the Low Post with Zach Lowe, the Hoop Collective hosted by Brian Windhorst and Jalen and Jacoby. Be sure to check out their podcasts wherever you get your pods. We'll catch you next time. Be well. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms or restrictions apply.